deserving listeners, as a lot of you know, I get a lot of angry emails from people on the right, men's movement, men's rights activists, these people who will say that I'm a snowflake or I am a cuck, they'll call me too. It's, it's, you know, they'll, they'll say that, um, you know, I, I'm a professor and it's so predictable that at a university I would have this super Marxist, liberal, ridiculous attitude about feminism and anti-racism and um, rights for the marginalized. And it's, I didn't know that that element existed in society until I became a podcaster. Before I was a podcaster, I was just a professor, just a therapist. And interacting with students, with clients, it, it was all a rational calm, for the most part, conversation. Everyone, including Republicans, people on the right, people from rural areas, people from cities, in my view, with enough sort of discussion, and and, and the discussion was often not horrible and not conflictual, there, people could see eye to eye eventually. That was my experience, even on tough topics. Um, it's not without its um, difficulty. It's not without its um, uh, strife. Uh, I remember in graduate school in the 90s, there were um, privileged people, uh, including myself, who were really going through some tough transitions in their mind. But it was all done within a caring atmosphere, a listening atmosphere, an accepting atmosphere, and uh, and you know, there's tension, there's sweatiness, but it wasn't it wasn't as horrible as what we see on Twitter and on the internet today, particularly today. And so, whenever I interface with this this world, I'm always I'm always trying to tell these people, look, you don't understand what's what the reality is that's happening at universities because you know there's a lot of talk about how universities, there's these safe spaces and you can't actually talk about anything controversial in universities because you, you get these people over, you know, these students will overreact and, and the news points cameras at these examples. And every, so everyone has this idea that, or unless you know, because you have experience, that universities are just filled with all these privileged, snotty, bratty, kids who are just inventing things to get quote unquote offended by, you know, famously, um, uh, what's his face? Jerry, not Jerry Seinfeld will no longer, I don't know if this is true, but I read somewhere that he will no longer do comedy at universities because he is so worried that he's going to offend someone and this kind of thing. And, and I always just think I, I am a professor at Antioch university, which is arguably one of the most, liberal, uh, cutting edge, or at least advertised as such, um, uh, universities or campuses in Seattle, you know, Seattle, the, the most liberal city, uh, in, you know, among, you know, uh, maybe Sweden, there's another liberal city or something or, uh, but in the United States anyway, it's, it's gotta be, you know, one of the most, if not the most liberal city. Antioch University, one of the most liberal, at least advertised universities in the city. And it's just not my experience. I mean, we hit these things head on as best as we can. I mean, we can always do better. In 20 years, I'm sure we'll look back at today and think like, man, we've made, we've come a long way. So I wanted to have a podcast in which we really went into this. Uh, 
And I thought that I should have a, a colleague of mine from Antioch University, Heidi Stauber. She is with us today because she teaches classes that specifically talk about cultural issues, gender issues, sexuality issues. And I find her to be extremely adept at being able to handle these kinds of conflicts that happen in class, where you have, for example, a privileged person who's never really thought about marginalization or not to the extent that they need to be. And you have other people in the class who have been living it and breathing it and studying it and talking about it for a long time. And you have both these people in the class and they're both learning the same material and they're both trying to interact with each other and they're both trying to understand each other. And you're at the center and there's, there's 20 students too, or 16 students. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, so welcome to the podcast, Heidi. Thank you very much. Would you like to introduce yourself? Like, who you are, where you come from, what, what do you, what, what's your story? What's, your, right. what's the deal with Heidi? What's the deal with Heidi? Um, let's see. I'm Heidi Stauber. I grew up in pretty much in the Pacific Northwest. Found my way to Evergreen State College, so that gives a lot of way from Corvallis, Oregon, when all my cohort was going to you know, OSU or University of Oregon. Uh, so it was kind of a... <clears throat> no-brainer that I would end up at Antioch somehow, and I've been affiliated with Antioch in all different ways for a couple of decades, really. Yeah, Evergreen being famously on the internet today as a place of liberalism yeah. and anti-marginalization, anti-oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, that's that's not why I ended up there. I grew up in a pretty conservative home. Mm. Um, but I, uh, didn't test well. I hated, uh, standardized tests. So when it, my family didn't know what to do with me when it looked like I was college bound, they just kind of held space and helped, but didn't encourage nor discourage. Um, so I looked through a college book and found that universities that didn't require, uh, SAT and Evergreen was one of them and it was close and, so I didn't seek it out for its liberal mission. I sought it out because I didn't like the way I tested. I had a great, great resume otherwise, but yeah, <laughs> no idea. When did you attend Evergreen? Uh, nine, no, 89 through 94. What year did you graduate from high school? 88. Oh, you're a year older than me. Yeah. <laughs> so back then, I remember Evergreen not being known for being a liberal school, but right, just being known for a, an alternative way yeah. of teaching that didn't involve testing and grades yeah that it involved much more personal attention Mm -hmm. and that was all that was different but at the same time it must have been well i guess all campuses are liberal to some extent in general right yeah and it was very systems oriented very you know systems thinking oriented which suited me well and um so that you know that was the beginning of my education and kind of systems thinking and maybe liberal thinking you know, having done a lot of work now on my family of origin, I joke with my mom about how she inadvertently raised a feminist, you know, that she had no intention to raise someone who was liberal-minded. It was not part of our family culture, but she was rebelling against her own upbringing in a way that she wasn't about to replicate the traditions that she was put through as a woman growing up. And she, um, so she accidentally, like, raised me to be questioning gender norms and also she was this you know sure that 
her husband should be as involved in child rearing as she was just for whatever reason that felt very important to her. And so my dad was busting some of the gender norms too, by getting up and making us lunches and being engaged with our whole upbringing process. And, um, so I always find that sort of ironic that they were, you know, at the time I, our family still isn't a big, let's talk politics family. But at the time I, as I grew up, you know, I grew up in church and I grew up with Republican conservative politics in my home and somehow didn't, um, and somehow wasn't aligned with them exactly by the time I left home. Yeah. And less to me, the, the differences between conservative quote unquote conservative ideas and liberal ideas. Um, when you actually look at particular, some particular beliefs, they, they can absolutely be shared. You absolutely. Know? Yeah. So it's not like, if you have conservative parents and, and you're liberal, that you would be that different mm-hmm. necessarily, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, interesting. Okay. So you started anyway. So I want to get to the actual topic. Mm-hmm. You teach classes called multicultural perspectives, which is a required class that people take in their second quarter. Yeah. So I teach family of origin and then uh, that's their first quarter. And then their second quarter is, multicultural perspectives, and these are all masters, uh, therapists, counselors, art therapists, drama therapists, or you don't teach the art therapy, drama therapy people, but you would teach the, uh, the, the mental health counselors and the, and the marriage and family therapists. Yeah. Yep. And you have up to 16, generally like eight to 16 students. Mm-hmm. And the whole purpose of the class is to help people to understand how to be a professional, be a therapist, a counselor. Um, and interfacing with people of various different cultural backgrounds that are different from them or the same as them and understanding society as a whole Mm -hmm. and understanding how that impacts the problem at hand or the context of therapy or the context of the problem. And, you know, not, it's not a small task. No. (laughs) And, and like I said, you have some people who enter your class who have never really thought about it. You have, just as an example, white, male, um, educated, rich background, uh, no disability, uh, straight, cis, and has grew up in the rural Arizona, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and has, you know, uh, arguably conservative attitudes, um, maybe even secretly Republican and Christian at Antioch, you right. know, right. and sits down and um, and. Um, how do you manage all that in, in a nutshell? Um, <clears throat> in a nutshell, there isn't a nutshell for it big enough. I think that um, the most right off the bat, it's letting everyone know that we inherited all of these forms of oppression. Like mm-hmm. none of us invented it. Nobody in that room invented racism. We didn't invent sexism. None of us are responsible at that level. And yet all of us have inherited sex. We all are. Like when I talk to people about what I teach, I say, I, you know, I basically teach classes where I spend the first couple of weeks letting everyone know they're sexist, classist, racist, ageist, ableist, size. Like we all are. And now that we know that, how do we um, pay attention to ourselves and, and not get mixed up in it? in a way that, that interferes with our ability to do good work with our clients. 
Right. And so you also teach internalized oppression, mm-hmm. which is kind of an advanced course that students often take later in their, in their program. And it, they know it to be, it's rumored to be extremely intense mm-hmm. e- emotionally because there are, um, I, I don't know, they call them demonstrations, but they're essentially sort of like therapy sessions in the middle of class. Mm-hmm. And students know they're getting into it, so they're yeah. not. It's not forced on them. They they sign up for it. It's mm-hmm. all explained up front that at some point you're going to be in a fishbowl in class with ten, twelve other students uh, looking on while you, Heidi, the instructor, talk with a, a student mm-hmm. about the internalized oppression that they've experienced. Right. Well, technically, like in that space, they become client and I become therapist and I and I model the intervention. So that course is um, like a treatment um, modality course. Right. So it's how do we take this concept of the way internalized oppression creates distress patterns for our clients and and what techniques do we use to to address those? It's not and that's how I work always in my clinical practice that's exactly how i work some clients seek me out because they know that's how i work and we talk the language but most clients i i'll let them know my modality but we don't talk about oppression we don't talk about sexism i just know the ways that it interacts and harms people and i work at that place so in that course yeah that's what students are aware of is that one way or another, this particular modality can go straight to the heart of something and can really, you know, can go right to a, the, the, the pattern that is creating the havoc in that person's life. And when people come out of the class, that's usually what they're referring to is having learned something about themselves in a 30-minute demo in class that they haven't learned in many years of therapy or self-discovery. And so it can cut to the chase really quick. And students will cry sometimes, and it will be quite uh, cathartic, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, people will come to my class later on that week or something and be like, so I just want you to know, I just had my demonstration, internalized oppression. I- I'm, I'm a little frazzled. Mm-hmm. And that's all they have to say. And, you know, it all, I get it, you know, because yeah. I've seen it so many times. Um, but it's a good thing they all consider it useful no pain no gain to some extent you know and it's always like that happens to a lesser degree in the journaling process in the multicultural perspectives class so there's i don't do demos in that class but i do invite students students are required to write a journal entry every week and just totally free form and they really cut loose in terms of discovering where their issues are their oppression is either in a, uh, you know, a target position where they've been harmed over the course of their life and they're starting to see the specifics of how, or in a, an agent position, you know, from their place of privilege, realizing, holy cow, I didn't realize I had this much privilege. And, right. what, and, and so to a lesser degree, they're making those breakthroughs are happening in a written form. And, and I'm addressing those or connecting with them about that in my responses. Yeah, discovery for sure, but much less emotionally uh, taxing as the internalized oppression demonstration can be. 
Yeah, so so multicultural perspectives is the required class. Internalized oppression, the more intense one, is an elective that, that people know what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Multicultural perspectives I took in the mid-90s with Gwen Jones, who mm-hmm. I think invented the core or created the, the template that I think is still kind of followed today, mm-hmm. which every week you write, a, you essentially kind of free write mm-hmm. in what they call a journal, but it's essentially like a reflection paper every week that you write. And I, I'll never forget, it was 28 years ago, 23 years ago, and I wrote something in there about Louis Farrakhan. And I, I said something like, because I didn't know anything about politics, but uh, so I, but I had heard, I had a friend who, talked a lot about Farrakhan and I said something in my reflection paper about Farrakhan. Like I said, I think I was talking about like you can have extremes at both sides or something like Mm. that. I don't remember, but it was something along those lines. And Gwen Jones uh, just wrote at, again, it's 23 years ago. I remember it like every Mm. once in a while just pops into my head as an example. She wrote in the, I can't remember what she exactly wrote, but she wrote something like, I still have it actually in my, in my file cabinet, I can actually look at it, but she wrote something like, how do you know this? Like, where's this coming from? Like you, you're making a claim here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's questionable what you're saying. And I sort of prided myself on at least knowing what not to say. You know, I certainly had internalized a ton of racism and sexism mm-hmm. and privilege and all that. But I, by that point, I, I at least thought of myself as someone who wouldn't, have a, um, a, a gaff like that where I would just sort of spout some propaganda without yeah. having, without knowing what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you know? And the fact that I'd put this to paper and turned it in and, and it didn't cross my editor, you know, there mm-hmm. was no editor that said like, well, wait a second, do you really know that to be true? Or is this some sort of narrative around black people be crazy sometimes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, or, um, angry black people are threatening or some kind of narrative around that. And I, I'll just never forget it. You know, it was just like, Oh yeah. Where did that come from? And how did mm-hmm. I, how did I possibly let that one get past the filter? Cause certainly there were other things running through my head. I was like, well, well, that's not going to work. You know what I mean? Right. That That's something that's a, that's a problem. And so, so it's much more of a, of a sort of a quiet process between mm-hmm. instructor and, student, uh, but valuable nonetheless. Yeah. And the way, like when, when you tell that story, I think uh, that's a credit to Gwen's teaching that your editor shut up, Mm -hmm. right? Because what she wants, what I want, I want to hear the gaffes, right? Like that's where our work is. If I have a class full of people being polite and protected, then we're really not working where they need to work. Do you ever run into that quiet, quiet, quiet and protected and editing people? People you suspect in the first have... part of the quarter, I do. I use a lot of, you know, my training is also in drama therapy, and I know a lot of what icebreaker games or like, you know, like improv what? games. What do you do? Well, that course in particular, I'll always start with the very traditional yes and right because what we're working in is is dropping this this thinking of us versus them, right? And people getting stuck in I'm good or bad. And so yes, and is a very playful game, but sets up a platform that I I work in all the time. And that is, 
both things exist. Like both, you're a really good person with really good intentions who inherited a racist mind frame, or you're a really good person with really good intentions that plays out classism all the time. And if, if we, if we don't talk about it, right, if you don't make mistakes in front of us here, if we don't make mistakes, then um, we get, we don't get to look at it. And so creating some very warm and inviting in, uh, community really quick, right? So the first couple of weeks, I'm modeling and creating really warmth and inviting community. So how do you do that? Because that's, that's key. Because I, I, in the vast majority of contexts that I've been in as a non-leader, mm-hmm. I have almost never felt safe and I, and, and to say anything, you know. And I felt like everyone else, even though the class was presumably set up to, to be a place mm-hmm. for that. And um, I have been in so many contexts like that as a student, as a participant or something. I have since tried to figure out what, why that is, you know, yeah. what may, what's the difference. And the thing that I often see is essentially the leadership doesn't have a way of of modeling and also of of um, protecting people from each other, I guess, mm-hmm. without being overbearing about it, without without essentially shaming the person. You know, like someone says something uh, sexist for, or mildly sexist, you know, in class, and the leadership would would roll their eyes essentially, or kind of go like, "Well, well, 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 wait a second here." Look what you just said, you know, and sort of because uh, and a lot of students kind of want that or the alternative is that the the leader will, which is what I saw a lot when I roll my eyes at this is yes. the, lead, the leader would just step back and just be like, well, let the students work it out, you know, and essentially to me, it's a cop out, but and or they have no idea what they're doing Um or they have this stupid principle about just like, well, students, you know, when they say stuff, they got to work it out amongst themselves. You know, it's just like I'd always be a participant. I'd be like, you're the only one getting paid in this scenario. And presumably, you know what you're doing better than the rest of us. So presumably you should be like getting involved to like make sure that this is a, an actual learning experience. And so what, it, what ended up happening, happening is you'd have this conflict between two students that would become unbridled and not helpful and scary to me watching it and i'd be like well i'm never getting involved in something like that because no one's going to contain it no one's gonna protect the two of us from hurting each other and then it'll just be a disaster and like every people have bad blood and then it'll carry on into the next course and then the next course you know so so how do you deal with that because i've heard you describe situations that i feel like manages it really well i wish i could answer that question really easily i ask myself that a lot Number one, I know that based on, you know, I have the privilege of being a, a white middle-aged woman and there's there's a lot to that that people don't mess with, right? Like I'm not threatening right off the bat, right? I don't threaten people's internalized racism very much. Um, I don't, th- you know, th- there's ways in which I'm non-threatening to begin with and that's a privilege that I've inherited. Okay. Um, I also personally have some skills going on that I've been really trying to articulate lately. And I think 
one of the things I talk about a lot with students is the difference between status, having status in the room and having hierarchy and power, right? So you can have both. I could be high status in the room and have power over them as their professor. But what I do with clients and with students is work on holding the status, which means I've got you. I'm keeping this room safe. You're paying a lot of money, so don't worry. I know what I'm doing, but lowering my hierarchy, which means I don't need to power over you to hold the space in this room. And so I'm not going to power over you. I'm going to be a bit more transparent about my process. Um, There's been, when I first started teaching multicultural perspectives, I noted I'm a, I have a different, I don't lecture a lot. So what I do is I really trust the readings that I've given them. They've read, everyone's read everything. They come and they discuss those readings in small groups and then as a large group. And I get to hear what have they already taken away from what I assigned them. And then I, um, I fill in the gaps. So if they're missing pieces, it's a dialogue and a conversation. And there's certainly points where I take over the mic, so to speak, you know, and I, I fill in what people maybe didn't pick out of the readings that I wanted them to get. And I noted um, the first couple of weeks of teaching that course for maybe the second time that when I moved into my conversation where, where I was saying, here's some pieces that I want you all to know, right, and be aware of. I would go about 10, 15 minutes, maybe 10, more like 10, before I would apologize for talking too much. And, and as soon as I, like, I would leave class and ponder what had just happened, and I would immediately, the next class I came back right in the beginning, has anyone noticed that I apologize about 10 minutes in? Yeah. That's my internalized sexism telling me women shouldn't talk so much, Right. And my internalized like elitism or whatever tells me I don't deserve to be a professor anyway because I didn't come from a background like I'm the only one in my family, only one of the children in my family to get a BA and the only one in my entire family to have a master's. This doesn't suit me to be a professor, right? So I, I lay out that process to them. That's what I'm telling you when I apologize, you know, is that. I don't know that I deserve to be talking, but the truth is I know what I'm talking about. I know what you need to know. And that's my lecture, right? And so, so that to me is a way of dropping the hierarchy and, and equalizing in a way and saying, I'm doing the same work you're doing. I'm I'm still doing it. And that this is ongoing work. We're never fully skilled at this. We're always training ourselves to be more careful, more thoughtful, more aware of ourselves, more aware of others. And, and so the first piece of, I think what works is that holding the status, holding the, protecting the space, but also letting them know I'm, I'm in this with you and I'm doing this work with you. And, and then, you know, one of the things that I'm very clear about right away is when, you know, we cover a whiteboard with all the different oppressions that we already know about. I'll make sure people note male oppression. I'll make sure they know about ways in which um, even class oppression affects middle class, upper class. Like we look at the way oppression affects everybody, Mm -hmm. right? And note that no one in the room is a spokesperson for their identity. Any questions that come up come to me, right? And, And people, so 
So that that's one of those accidents that happens that, that you're talking about, where if, you know, our population, we don't have a lot of people of color in our student body all the time. And so when somebody of color is in the room, um, it, it, it's a bad habit people have to turn to that person and expect them to represent their entire population, you know, entire identity. And um, so I sort of stop that before it starts, right? Like the men in the room aren't representative of all men everywhere. And the people of color in the room are not representative. So, yeah, well, in my multicultural class in Gwen's class in 1995, I was the only man. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah there, that happens I th- a and lot. The, I think the class was 20 people. Um, and, but I think I was also the only non-white person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was an int- and I generally don't like talking in crowds. So uh, I think it was an interesting quarter. For, I've, mm-hmm. I very much remember it. There, there's only f- a few classes I really remember well, and I, I really mm-hmm. remember that one. Yeah. And I do have some like embodied activities, right, that, that land us all on the same page. So um, ways of showing people that you're, we're all operating the same human brain that likes to apply meaning to things even when there's no meaning to be had really like we're constantly telling a story about something we see making patterns or routines out of it it's it's habitualized it's part of our animal brain right and so there there's several things I'll front load in the very beginning of the quarter that get us in, in a common language right away in the class so even though we arrive not knowing anything about each other what we do know is we can all refer back to that exercise we did day one about yes and or that exercise we did day two about um, how how humans just apply meaning and so we just have to be conscientious right and we have to know we're applying meaning right so uh, I just want to circle back to something you said to make sure that people understand what you're saying is that you actually do you so you do a whole whiteboard of all you just brainstorm different kinds of uh, groups who are being marginalized in in certain Mm -hmm. ideas in our culture that harm particular groups of people and you obviously include women people of color uh, people with disabilities Mm -hmm. trans people uh, lgbtqia people um, uh, and you also include uh, potentially people who are not traditionally thought of as being harmed by um, I, stereotypes or um, being targeted by by other groups of people, such as men or mm-hmm. upper class people mm-hmm. or Christians, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what you were saying, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, my guess is, given your demeanor and your attitude and the way you are is that you, you, you're a firm person. You have firm ideas. You're not, you don't back down from, uh, things. You're not, you don't, you're not like passive about your, mm-hmm. um, ideas of certain things, but at the same time, so that's an important element I think for the class. Cause you, you could be too, too warm and too inviting and too accepting. I suppose, you know, like there needs to be some, I don't know what the word is, but some standard or some holding of some principles that if you don't hold them as a leader, there could be pushback from privilege that will shut it up, essentially. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so you have to be firm and you have to be strong in that way. But at the same time, if I might describe my impression of you, is that you also give off a uh, welcoming... um, 
accepting vibe. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing there, because, you know, I teach uh, classes as well, and I have really thought about how the first meeting is so important because you set the tone and the, and as, and as, as a student myself, I would analyze this as well. It all comes down to like the first handful of crisis points, you know, critical turning points. The first time a student talks, the first time a student brings up something that's a little contrary to what the instructor says you know, everyone's watching. Oh, that that student is pushing back. What's the what's the instructor? Everyone's like glued on the instructor. What's the instructor going to do with this? And so I'm guessing through all those like critical moments in the beginning of a quarter, you're proving that you um, have the principles that you've been saying in terms of we didn't inherit. It's not your fault. Right. <laughs> it's not any of our fault right. that sexism is in our culture or mm -hmm. racism is in our culture. Uh, it's not our fault that we have internalized these ideas from our stupid society. Mm -hmm. It's it, and it's not our fault that they're going to spew out of our faces sometimes. You know, it's 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 going to happen. You know, and we're going to deal with it, and we have to look at it. But we didn't invent it, right. <laughs> and so you know, like let's you know, uh, I'm going to say something, but I'm not. It's not your fault that racism exists. You're responsible if something racist comes out of your mouth, but I understand by where you might have gotten that from, or I might under, or let's explore that a little bit in terms of now I'm sort of inserting my own sort of thing, mm -hmm. but like, let's explore that a bit in terms of how you have perhaps adopted that point of view to protect your ego somehow, you know, uh, that th when did that happen? <laughs> you know, right. were, were you called a name when you were a kid or were you attacked by uh, a certain you know sort of person or something or were you called you know what what was your parents did they say things that sort of hurt you when you were a kid that you and then you just sort of chose to adopt it let's look at that you know and you're still responsible for it and, and it's got to change as a therapist because you can't you can't possess that notion anymore mm -hmm. as a therapist but at the same time I'm not going to dismiss you or um, ostracize you or even think you're any different from anyone else in the class. You know, you're exactly, we're all like this. Well, I think as you're talking, part of what's coming to mind to me that maybe I haven't ever been able to articulate quite as well as hopefully I will in this moment is that like I re in terms of my firm beliefs, I really firmly believe that these legacies of oppression hurt everyone. And so if that client you're describing is, is trying to make sense of something and, and they are inadvertently or, or intentionally racist. You mean student? Student, yeah. Um, then my, my first inclination is this is hard for them. Th this is hard on them. And my compassion is with them immediately. Now my compassion is with whomever might be harmed in the room as well. So it's like... I come home from that class exhausted. I bet. Um, because it's, it is a combination course and group therapy, right? I am attuning to carefully to mm, the needs of each individual in that room. 
that's something that somewhere along the way I learned to do well. Groups, I can do well, right? So that's handy for me. But I, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking my response so immediately is one of deep compassion for the, the difficulty and the pain it is for somebody to make this discovery about themselves, to be stuck in this loop of racist thinking, to have some notion that it's harmful and, and not know what to do. Right. right. They, they're not they're not looking to cause harm. It was socialized so young. They didn't have a chance when they were being socialized to be racist at age three, four and five to raise their hand and say, I don't think I want to buy this story. You know, it, it was it was handed to them and and they've lived a life replicating that. Well, it, it certainly is a benefit that I work in a, a university where I'm training therapists. So they're arriving with some sort of notion that they want to be good to people. So, so I get to capitalize on that, right? And, and I get to think to myself, what you're doing right now, if you're in a moment of, of exposing your classism and exposing your racism, what you're doing is inviting me to, to, to check in with you and let you know that your desire to do good to others will be interrupted by what's happening right now. Right. And I just want to point out to people that have this notion about universities being this bastion of safe places and you can't say anything that offends anyone that 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 this has nothing. This is so far afield from that. Mm -hmm. We are particularly in these classes diving straight into every topic you're, quote unquote, not supposed to talk about, I yeah. suppose. And none of this is safe. There's nothing. I mean, we mm -hmm. try to create safety, but. None of the, you know, safe topics are, let's talk about Star Wars, or mm -hmm. I guess, well, geez, even today. But, you know, let's talk about uh, <laughs> the Seahawks. Oh, geez, even that. Yeah. You know, but anyway, there, there, there are safer topics, yes, you know? Yes, and, um And so, God, I'm trying to think of anything that doesn't have something political. I'm, I'm looking at the trees. There's politics there. Hamburgers have po politics too. Well, but you're, you're nailing it right there as you even can't come up with anything. Because one of the first things I talk about in that course and nearly any course I teach actually is I'm going to take you into your fear. All right. Let's just know that now. Yeah. Because you're about to embark in a career where people arrive frightened in your office every day. And you... You don't have to be frightened. We don't have to be frightened. We can create buffers all around us, right? But you need to identify with your clients. You don't have to be as frightened as them. But I need you to cross over the things you're afraid of. And I need you to, to learn how to be safe in your fear and safe in your discomfort because you're going to be there a lot. And you need to be able to handle that in a way that that tucks it to the side so you're totally present with your client, and then you go take care of yourself. Does and, it work in class? Do people actually overcome their fears and show up fearless? Well, it's not fear like it's not fearless though, right? Like we're always scared in our conversations, well, I, but we're willing to to be there with each other. Are so people willing to do it? They must be. I mean, you'd have to talk to them. I am seeing people make huge transitions. Like even in one class starting the, I started the class with right up on the board here, what you want for your clients one day. These are second quarter students. So, you know, they're, they're really coming out of their heart and their hope, right? It's not out of some trained, you know, oh, I'm supposed to want this. And um, I had a student, um, a, a white male of privilege. He was, he was, 
aware of his privilege and wrestling with it. And that particular day we were talking about classism. They had a big discussion, a reading discussion. He was struggling with some of the readings to really understand the class piece of it and wasn't, wasn't quite buying it yet, you know. And then we came back to a larger discussion. I, I heard his struggle and, and I heard what he was working with and offered a story and offered some guidance about what we don't look at with classism, right? Like the piece where I guess if, if a a nutshell of what he was wrestling with was if given the opportunity, if a, if a, a, a young kid of color is given the opportunity to be in a private school, um, um, why wouldn't they take full advantage of that, right? Like, why would why would they struggle at all? Why wouldn't they just dive in deeply, right? And um, I think this was an experience they read about, maybe. <clears throat> and and he was just he just didn't have enough information. He wasn't being rude, and he you know his sure his classism was showing, but also his lack of information was showing. And I told a story of my own experience in being in a situation where. I was outclassed, right? Like I was in in an environment in which I didn't know the protocols of that class, that higher class environment, and and all the mistakes I made, and and all of the embarrassment I experienced, and and leaving that space and saying I will never do that ever again, right? But I I was a good person, I was a smart person, I just didn't know the rules of the game. And as soon as I finished that story, he, the, the look on his face changed and he said, oh, you know, this is what I've been missing. And he got up and went back to the whiteboard and erased one of the things he wanted for his, his future clients because it recognized the classism in what he was saying. What was it? It, it was ha- essentially... Have a wonderful job or something? <laughs> Wanting, I, I don't remember it exactly, but I think it had something to do with prosperous in society. Or wanting them to um, to show up, like wanting them to have the guts to show up, maybe. Oh. And for him, it was wrapped up in that, like, get I a hold of yourself, man. Yeah, and pull and, yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, in an hour and a half discussion, he recognized that that's not that doesn't say it. That's not what I want for them. Like I. I want their liberation and it's not in playing the game, right? Learning to play the game. It may not be their liberation. And, um, and he was, he did that openly in front of all of us. Right. And so something was created. I mean, we've created something that, you know, there's a, you know, another other points where I think what's interesting, because as we're talking about this and, and, one of the things that's that I do in that class is the final assignment. I help them create a case study of their most, the, the case they're most worried about the case. They think that will trigger them the most, make them most mad, make them most concerned, trigger all their counter-transference, you know, and that's how I run most of my courses is paying attention to that counter-transference. And Oftentimes, the students, many of the students, so the ones you're thinking of, maybe who you you move into that camp of liberal, like educated, anti-racist, like those folks um, who are are oftentimes writing a case study about their most feared client walking through the door 
is a, a conservative, white, Christian, adult male. With a Make America Great Again hat. Something like that. Exactly. And, and once they design that that's their case study, I make them write a plan of, of treatment where they're gracious, open, accepting, and supportive, and doing really good work. Right. So, so they're having to look at how do I apply this principle of goodness and, and across the board, right? It's not something we reserve just for those marginalized people. Right. I say this uh, day one at Family of Origin because I asked them uh, to talk about right off the bat about ethnicity and culture and how their childhood um, might have uh, just any idea that comes to their head about it. And, and I let them go around the room and just, you know, just sort of, cause it's always the same. Nine out of 10 people will talk about, well, my dad was racist against black people and that will be what they'll talk about. And I didn't like that. And da, 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 da. or I grew up in a small community where we didn't have any people, we didn't have any black people. And so I didn't really know. And so I, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I, I wish I grew up in a city where there, we'd have more diverse people. That's like what everyone talks about. And I'm like, great, wonderful. Uh, absolutely. And when I ask you about culture, <laughs> I'm asking about what's it like to grow up in rural culture? Mm-hmm. What's it like to grow up with uh, heterosexual parents? What's it like to grow up in a, a Lutheran church? What's it like to grow up as a female who doesn't like to work on a farm? Or what's it like to grow up with a lot of animals? What's it like to grow up with people who hunt? Mm-hmm. What's it like to grow up in the city? What's it like, you know, it's not about racist black and white i mean that's that's one thing for Mm -hmm. sure but it's you know it's one among millions of things Mm -hmm. to comment on regarding culture and as you know you're you're pointing out uh it's also when you're liberal and anti-racist and have a particular uh political stance perhaps against republicans and have ideas and stereotypes against republicans what is your liberal culture? How does it affect the way that you can treat and have compassion for this person from another culture? Right. Even though, even though, you know, when you go on the internet or Facebook among your echo chamber, those others are supposedly idiots and rejectable and dismissible and horrible, evil human beings. And it's, and it's like, and what, what I also tell people is there was you before the first day of family of origin class. You could, you, you were free to do all that. That's fine. There's nothing, mm-hmm. you know, every, it's, it's a free world, free country. Anyway, you're supposedly free to have all these thoughts. You can think you're a therapist now. All that is over. Right. Like you can't, you have to look at yourself now. You have to say, well, wait a second. Where does that come from? Is that helpful? Is that going to actually harm other, is it going to harm clients when I, mm-hmm. when, if I not only sort of let that rattle around in my head, but actually expose myself to this echo chamber that will actually make me not be able to treat these, these other human beings of which I want to remind people half of Americans are Republicans. So, you know what I mean? Now Seattle, there's not a lot, but you know, yeah, anyway. but yeah we, we run into them, right? Like it, it, and I think it's, it's our, it's our responsibility ethically to be able to serve the person in the room. Right. 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 And keep our, and we get that lip service a lot of keeping your politics outside the door. Right. And, and I, I think maybe something often I'll say to clients until you can hang a shingle students, students, 
Um, So you can see I blur the line. Um, I say to students a lot, like you get to a point where you hang a shingle for a private practice and you can be very specific who you're willing to serve. Like if if you need to get to that point, do that. Right. I only serve the LGBTQIA plus community. Right. Um, But when you're working in community mental health and maybe when you're interning, you're assigned clients because you're available, not because it's a good fit necessarily. So you have to, you have to make it a good fit for them, right? You, it's your responsibility. And so you have to very broad thinking. You, you, and like you're saying, you can go be in any social justice movement you want. And, and we want you to be actively involved in changing the world in those ways. But you have to hold an open mind and, uh, and, and, an intention to do really good work where that person needs work and, and not shut down and not be mm, compromised, you know, not letting your clinical work be compromised by your political beliefs in the room. So Heidi, I want to ask you a a few pointed questions about the goals of these courses, because, you know, we have our stated objectives. I wrote some of them, but (laughs) these are for accreditors and, and they're, they lend themselves to easily written outable forms, you know, but I want to ask you some pointed things. But I also want to point out that you teach another class along these lines, which is counseling sexual minorities as well as or human I sexuality. T- yeah, yeah. You teach human sexuality, which we're transitioning and you're part of that transition uh, away from it simply being a class about anatomy and um sort of it being more of a seminar class where you're just sort of teaching about um, broad topics to also teaching about political issues and, and identity and um, having it be more in line with a counseling others kind of class. Um, Cause in the past it, it was very focused. It had a lot of anatomy and it had a lot of, which was great. I thought mm-hmm. very interesting, but not necessarily as relevant as um, the transition we're making. And so in these classes as well, there's, there's, there's a lot of talk ab- about how to word gender itself. He, she, they, some other word, um, people with penises, people with vaginas, people with both, people with neither, people who are transitioning, people who used to have this and that. Mm-hmm. And some people don't like to have any pronoun attached to that. And so and you're entering into a class. So actually, while we're on this topic, let's go into this because I'm just <laughs> funny. Um, which is reminding me, this is the whole point why I wanted to have you on the podcast anyway, because you were talking about this in a meeting the other day. You were yeah. like, and, and you and I started talking about it. And I was just like, man, this would be a great for the podcast. So we finally got into the main point here, Heidi. <laughs> How do you manage that conversation in class? <laughs> well, it's a, um, I thought you were going to ask a different question to begin with. So uh, I... I think it's along those lines of being vulnerable and telling the class that I'm doing this differently this time. And I'm, and I'm doing it in alignment with where we we're headed as, um, as, as an individual, but it's interesting because it is political right now, but I wish it wasn't political. Like it's just, it's about humans getting things right for themselves. So how do you say, give me an example of like how you open this up? in class first day, you know, because <laughs> right. gender is immediately a topic, I'm guessing, in, yeah. in, in class one. So 
how do you, I'm, I'm guessing you have to have some kind of preamble right away. Yeah. I, I again do, um, some exercises that bring us all into the same experience, you know, some physical like movement kind of conversation exercises. But as, as an instructor, I I'm telling them that my job here is to make sure you meet all your competencies, you're ready for the licensing exam. And, and I I've got that covered. I'm also like, actively on the edge of redesigning this based on what humans need now, like what we're seeing humans need now. And thinking about, I mean, really what it comes down to in all these classes, like my, in human sexuality, I might voice it as, I'm hoping that in this class, we talk about all the things that, that if it came up in a session with a client for the very first time, um, you might make a huge, there might be a huge shocked look on your face right? We don't want that to happen. So we want the shocked faces to happen in this class. And so I'm going to work as far off the edge as I know how to with lots of resource from outside the course, you know, so that anything that we're, we're working on this edge where you can be shocked, be shocked here, work through it here. So when you're sitting across from someone and they describe to you that, um, sex is difficult because while they present as a male, they still have a vagina and, and their partner also, you know, like you don't go, what, you know, like, um, same with multicultural perspectives. It's like that shock factor needs to be taken care of here. So you're gentle and present and great. So it gives a safety of, and an expectation Yes, and you're cool with it. You're pretty mm-hmm. cool with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but- I, and I, like, acknowledge with them that we're co-creating this in a way, like, I, I'm ahead of you. I'm keeping track of all these things. There are some people in this room who who will inform me, and there's some people who will be formed informed by each other. Same setup about setting group norms, norms no particular identity is a spokesperson for that identity in this room. Right. Same stuff. But right. how do you specifically deal with the topic of pronouns? Right. This quarter was, this is only the second time I've taught this course and I'm redesigning it completely. But um, you, you're I break also, it you also down. bring all this experience yeah. of gender talk and everything. Yeah. So it's not your first rodeo. In terms no, of that. no. Um, I, br- I break it down completely. This time, what I really worked on was we are taking apart the concept of human sexuality into smaller and smaller components and looking at them in that way. So I want to just Rather start- than like he and the penis and she and the yeah, vagina exactly. and people have sex and that, it, you know, yeah. so you're breaking apart. Because gender is separate from sexual anatomy. And gender expression is separate from gender identity. Hmm. And sexual interest is separate from right. who you have sex with. Right. So just to break that yeah. down for people who don't understand, it's that you can identify as male, for example, or, yeah, you could identify mm-hmm. as male. You could that day express yourself as female just because that's what you want to do for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And you could also be attracted to other men on mm-hmm. one day and another day and another year, for example, you say, you know what? I think I'm attracted to people who express themselves as women, whether they actually were born with a vagina or a penis. Mm-hmm. And so you have penises, you have vaginas. Mm-hmm. Well, we have and, vulvas actually. Okay. And then the, yeah. 
vulvas. What's the distinction there? So um, the way that we did anatomy was to start off with kind of, I was thinking what bodies might end up in your room, not what were they assigned at birth to start with. Mm-hmm. Bodies that end up in the room, you know, we talk about anatomy generally in that course now, not deep, deep details. Right. With the external reproductive or external sexual organs for uh, our vulva or penis and scrotum, internal uh, is vagina or uterus, ovaries, fallopian tubes. So those are kind of all the parts. Okay. So you have people who have vulva and Mm -hmm. people who have... So vulva is plural? Vulvas. Well, if it's multiple people. Vulvae. (laughs) <laughs> vulvas, sis, vulva, vulvas. Uh, well, you know, we got to leave room for those who might have multiple. I mean, we don't. There's, but isn't no. it multiple? Isn't it a pair of vulva? <laughs> isn't it two vulva? Am I? I mean, do you? It's a vulva. It's a vulva. The yeah. It's and a you're vulva. thinking the lips and then the clitor. Like the clitoris is is part of is the external. Is so the vulva? It's it's the yeah the vulva is the the external the the lips there and see now you're asking everything yeah it's everything all the outside ish stuff i don't know if the clitoris is separate from the vulva but but anyway anyway vulva okay so you have people who were born with vulva people who later had vulva you had people born Mm -hmm. with penises and scrotum and people who did not people who uh, later had a penis and a scrotum People who uh, identify as female, people identify as male, people identify as they, people identify as pan mm-hmm. or queer or none well, of the above. Yeah, right. And so what we're doing is, um, and this is what's interesting for me, it's like I'm working a learning edge totally, right? So I'm probably not going to get it exactly right for folks who are even farther ahead than me. But um, and you explain that in class. Yes, and I'm explaining that right now on the podcast too. So I'll have <laughs> that caveat as well. <laughs> but I'm wanting to separate really that there are people who will show up in your office who who may identify it with the pronoun of she um, and have a, a vulva and the internal reproductive organs and not have breasts, you know. And so, but that's an intersection of anatomy, gender, gender expression, right. you know, and, and sexual orientation is different than that even. Right. And, and I also want to give a little uh, clarification to the way I'm depicting gender and sexual orientation is that um, even though I gave an example of some of a particular example of someone who could perhaps seemingly have a, a, a bit more fluidity around um, their expression or choices or feelings and identity as time goes on for a lot of people it's pretty stable Mm -hmm. and it's not some kind of flippant thing that you know they just sort of turn on and off you know it's something that for a lot of people it's it's just so so to speak as ingrained in you as being heterosexual or or, uh, being born with a penis and identifying as a male Mm -hmm. you can um, be just as you know, quote unquote, born with a penis and totally identifies a female and never, mm-hmm. it, you know, you don't have an option to just be like, okay, today I want to be, you know, right. so I, I don't want to give that impression that no. somehow it's just like this flippant little choice that people make. Although there are some people that do that and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think 
what's tricky about this com- these conversations are that when we drop that binary, right, we are inviting ourselves to talk in far more detail. Mm-hmm. It's far less simplistic. And I've been actively working on shifting the language from normative to common, right? So it's, it's, it's highly common. It's most common that a body that's assigned female at birth, uh, that human identifies as female and, and gender expresses their gender as female and likes the pronoun she. And that's really common. And we call that someone who's cis, you know, a cis female is someone who aligns with the, the gender assigned at birth and sex assigned at birth. And, and that's really common. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting in class to be working. My intention was to teach this course without teaching. So what, what's happened traditionally is you teach what's most common and then you point out the, the other. Mm. And right. Like chapter 13, everything else. Exactly. Okay. And, and I was thinking that's, that's not inclusivity, right? Like that's, that's not addressing it in a way that normalizes all of it. Right. And and the history, as far as I can tell of our field was in, in the beginning, you just taught common and you didn't even know necessarily about the, the other, so to speak, because they were marginalized and oppressed to silence and to hide. And so there was complete ignorance. And then once there was awareness, it, it was ignored. And then once it was not ignored, it was tacked on mm-hmm. and, you know, begrudgingly like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll get some random queer person to write chapter 13, but we'll keep the rest of the chapters normal the way that it feels comfortable for us. And, da, da, da. and then um, maybe there's some other transition phase, but now we're in a position where it's like, no, no, no. Chapter 13 needs to be, we need to get rid of the chapters or something. It's right. just like we're all in the same group here. And just because something's common doesn't mean it, it, it gets the dominant voice. It doesn't, be, I mean? it doesn't get to be called normal just right. because it's common. Right. And we it, don't have it as an asterisk, you know, it's, yeah, exactly. it, every, everything's in the same educational discussion pool, you know? It, and it's interesting to me too, because we had a great discussion where I got a little bit like, okay, people look at this carefully because there was this, I use a text, which um, is very uh, oriented towards traditional and common coupling, you know, hetero coupling marriages versus partnerships. And it's a really excellent text in dealing with um, sexual issues between partners and the students in the course are struggle with that text because it doesn't have that inclusivity in it. Like it's not talking about all of those things. And it's an interesting conversation to have for me of now that we're, we're trying this very inclusive model to hear people to have to remind students that it's still true that the most common presentation of partners that you'll see in your office are cis identified female, cis identified males who are hetero heterosexually interested in each other and struggling with their sexuality. Like that's still the most common presentation you're, you're going to get again, unless you hang a shingle that says, I only want to work in this other way. So you still, you need to know that too, right? This is part of it here looking at this whole big picture. Right. Yeah. There's so many issues that, that 
come to mind, you know, the languaging that you're saying, the sort of caveats around this, the, the apologies for the texts, you know, mm-hmm. um, the uh, being careful not to use heuristics that offend, you know, like one of the heuristics that offends me as a man is that I, I have seen women in our field who, when they talk about uh, abuse, intimate partner violence, or or even sexual abuse, they'll be like, okay, well, so when he beats her, mm-hmm. and they just proceed to, to have the entire conversation with pronouns with he is obviously the abuser and she is obviously the the you know the mm-hmm. the victim survivor. You uh, one, it's like uh, certainly statistically that's the common scenario, mm-hmm. but certainly there are women who abuse their. Um, uh, their their men uh, in equal amounts. It, it's not a lesser offense. It's not a. It's not less scary to the victim. Right. Um, and it, in some ways, it can be worse because what man wants to step forward and say I'm being abused? I mean, women don't feel comfortable with that anyway, and it denies same sex people. Mm-hmm. So, and. It, it still happens today. And right. and I'm sitting as a student listening. You know, if I was an instructor, I'd be like, well, whoa, whoa, you know, like I get mm-hmm. what you're doing. Um, however, you know, th- these, are, these are the problems with that. Um, but as a, as a non, non-status person, <laughs> one person in, in a pool and being Japanese and a harmony person, I don't say anything. But in my mind, <laughs> there's no <laughs> harmony. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's all that. There's all that kind of example, you know, where. Uh, we want as instructors we we're like okay don't don't uh lock into a particular pronoun mm-hmm. and our language is so set up for pronouns you know it's really hard yeah, yeah. i mean i'm still it's, it's been like i don't know year 8 or something and i'm still trying to adjust to they mm-hmm. you know referring to a single person as they sometimes i feel like my brain is doing really well with it and other times it just doesn't it's just so hard for my brain to like make that word the thing, you know, and, um, but my brain's adjusting and, you know, it's been, it's been 47 years of neurons going in a particular direction. I'm trying to, on that one anyway, push back. Yeah. So how do you deal with all that kind of stuff as, as an instructor? Cause you're lecturing and it's sexuality and, you know, you're fielding questions. People are probably making mistakes as they're discussing gender and everything. Like, how do you deal with that? I, um, am super humble and vulnerable, you know, just, uh, not as a, a kind of, you know, there's that, um, there's that tender way of like putting a disclaimer that really gives you permission to mess up, right? Mm-hmm. That like, I'm probably not going to get this right. So just, you know, that's not what it is for me. It's, it's more like, um, if you catch, if, if we catch each other and it's an agreement we make first class, like how are we going to help each other do this work? Mm. How are we going to do this? And what kind of agreements do we have? And, and I am really clear with them that I'm involved in this too. Mm. Right. And I know I'm in a position of power here. And, and so my job is to help you understand in any way I can that I'm not exempt. Right. So in that first class on anatomy, someone raised their hand and said, don't we need to split the, the vagina needs to be separate. Like we had vagina at all representing vagina, uterus, fallopian tubes and ovaries. And, and the student said the vagina needs to be separate because that can be constructed. Right. Like a, a trans person surgically is going to have a vagina at some point. So we were like, OK, yes, like I don't. I don't hold, I don't need to hold some, I don't need to hold my status by being right. 
Mm. I need, I hold my status by being, um, humble and connected. And so we can make those alterations. They can, you know, I'm, I'm consistently attentive to my availability to, to, um, openly exchange information. I'm sure that really works. Yeah. And I was thinking as you were talking that like it on all of this topic, like haven't we seen in our field over and over and over that the most harm is caused when people can't talk about something. Right. And so, all of it, it, it in in multicultural and human sexuality for me I, I sometimes like i know i have politics outside like i know where my politics are but when i i'm really about humanity right like i'm really about people bringing to the surface what needs to be said and creating that space to do that and so in both those classes, what we're trying to do is make it easier for conversations to happen. If we drop the pronouns, right? Like the example you used, when you consistently say he is the abuser and she is the abused, then, then the, the person sitting in the crowd who, who identifies as male and as someone who was abused doesn't feel open to having a conversation about their experience. And we need them to feel open to having a conversation because that's what's going to heal and help. Right. Breaking it down to uh, harming actual human beings is always what I try to do because mm-hmm. what what I find, uh, unfortunately, what a lot of people talk about, even in our field, but particularly on the, on the Internet, is like, you can't say that anymore. Or right. that offends me. Or that probably will offend someone, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, um, I don't really know what that means. You know, I guess if someone has, if someone's pedantic and they're just really stuck up about particular kinds of word usage that, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to get behind that, but let's break it down to what you just said, which is if you say he, she, there's going to be a man who was abused or he knows, or someone in the room knows a man who mm-hmm. was abused, uh, someone who identifies as male being abused and they will, be hurt by it'll hurt their feelings they'll be like wow so is that person weird or am i not allowed to bring Mm -hmm. up that it's a man or or i feel like as as a or 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 a man is in the room and has never abused anyone as far as they know and they're and they're like why is this why is it man woman (laughs) like like can't can it be anybody and and so it's it's not like a massive harm like you're hitting him over the head with a baseball bat but it's a tiny little movement of like not helping people to talk or feel mm-hmm. welcome or to move things forward. I always try to bring it back to that, you know, and I find that, you know, people just say that's sexist and that's, that's, you know, you're being a bigot and all these words get thrown out. And I don't think that that's very helpful because no. I don't even know what it means half the time. We had a discussion in a uh, human sexuality class where the, uh, there was, it, it um, and we were really discussing rape culture and, and it sort of started shifting to uh, female identified students in the room saying, how will I ever work with uh, um, a man who is a, a cis male hetero and, and happens to identify with that extreme masculinity that is, um, in her words, you know, toxic and violent. And it was, um, to me, a really special moment because uh, there was another student, it was a, you know, group discussion, another student who'd been just last quarter in my multicultural class, right? And, and before I, I needed to say anything, she spoke up and said, 
what I learned from Heidi's multicultural class is that everyone has hurt and harm, right? And so you ha- you look past whatever you think about that person and your job is to figure out where's their hurt and harm, you know? And and how do I, how do I work with that pain? Was that one person? of your moments where you're like, it's all been worth it? <laughs> it is. It, it was. It was one of those moments of, hey, you know, like... They're listening. They're listening and and applying. And like this was a person basically defending the rights of a toxic white male, you know, having the right to good therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Having the right to being treated really well. Great. I love that. And um, also what would, but I think a common conclusion from that would be, and I'm, and I have a picture in my mind mm-hmm. about what this, what they're, what they're picturing in their mind. You know, some guy who works out a lot, wears a baseball cap on backwards, wears a lot of affliction stuff. Ha, you know, talks about cars and working out and football, right. and l- likes to date women who are who look good in bikinis and on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, yeah, and that's likes, about what they had described. Yeah. Likes to tan, you know, let me think. Where's Jakar? Uh, what else could I say? Um, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the I think so. I think the way that, you know, the first person was describing it was a very othering and, and distancing. Mm-hmm. And then the next person saying, well, you know, they, they might've been, you know, is to look at how they've been harmed uh, in these ways. And I think a common, a quick uh, conclusion from that was, Oh, he's been harmed. That's why he's acting that way. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, instead of, uh, well, wait, you know, people can wear Jakar. They can, they can have a preference in partner they can mm-hmm. work out if they want to. They can be interested in working out. They can be interested in football if they want to. Not, I mean, there's there's nothing empirically no. harmful about liking a particular sport or something like that, um, or anything else. Right. You know what I mean? And so, uh, so just kind of teasing all that out. Now, in yeah. common society, we we will say stuff like that, like the you know the way I depicted this guy because it's not me. Um, it's actually not far from me, actually, when you compare me to the rest of the world. Like pe- people in other cu- countries probably look at me like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I probably have, I have a red car, for example. Anyway, so, but my point is, is that um, how do you help them kind of advance that forward? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or is that even the scope of a of a 10-week class? Oh, is it? I don't um well, I think it's setting it into this position of, again, the counter-transference, really, right? Like that piece of if you have preconceived notions about this person and you've decided they got that way because something bad happened and you're going to fix them. Right. And then, make them not wear gel in their hair and <laughs> then, then we, work out. we have to redo some, some training here. But like, I think you that's know? what, that's where a lot of people go. Yeah. They're like, Oh, well he's only that douchebag because he's been harmed and I'm going to help him so that he won't be a douchebag, how I label douchebags, you know right, what I mean? Right, right. And it's like, no, no, no. No, 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 no. You know? yeah. Well, don't you find, like, I pretty regularly find myself telling students, it's not your job to fix people. Like, you, you're not going to miraculously fix anyone, and you're not going to, like... But it's so hard to get people to really step out of the box and look at the notions in our society around particular groups of people, particularly about particular groups of people who are traditionally allowed to be bashed, right. you know, you can bash a douchebag, you can bash a Republican, you can bash a white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in in liberal circles and completely get away with it. You can still kind of bash fat people, quote unquote mm-hmm. fat people. I use the word fat in the Lindy West sense. She identifies mm-hmm. as fat. She's cool with the word fat. It's not a derogatory term. It's being, you know, what do they call it? Uh, appropriated yeah. <laughs> by some people. Anyway, people people that weigh more, you know. Yeah. And um, so I just I just find it personally frustrating trying to shift people's real paradigm around that. Mm -hmm. Because once your paradigm shifts, then everything becomes questionable. You know, every notion that I have about every human being is like massively questioned. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Even the ones that people will cheer me for, for, even the ones I'll be rewarded for, even ones that some people want me to have about them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, everything becomes just like, oh my God, like everything I think is is probably a stereotype, you know, and wrong, right. you know? But this is where it becomes so complex, right? And this is where, as humans, we tend to, like, want to put brakes on things and, like, simplify, 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 right? And um, and and it's where it's the truth, right? You're speaking about, like, I, I would have to strip everything. Like, basically, I want to strip everything aside and just look at the humanity. And just look, and, and can I? Can I look at the humanity and not see the socialized forms, you know, see the gender? Can I? And, and we don't want to shift into this, this colorblind thing that we did that didn't work for many, many years, right? So we want to really see people's uniqueness mm. and really honor their uniqueness and, and strip away uh, that part that is judgment and fear, maybe, or like now we're like, we're in a very complex and no, but existential I think conversation. But to with, me, it, it is the core of, I think, all these classes in the program in general. And I find that when I finally get students in case consultation and I have a year and a half to really work with them, yeah. I, I, this is one of my main goals for them. Because like yesterday, there was a student who asked a question. She said, how do I deal with this with this, um, you know, forgive me, but he's this bratty 16 year old kid. He smokes pot all the time and he comes to my office and he just sits there and he doesn't any, you know, how do I get him to not smoke pot every day? What am I supposed to do? And, you know, we've had conversations about the get all, all the time, but, but there's so much wrapped up in that question, you know, not only around like stage of change and what's the role of the therapist and is the client actually asking you for something, but also like, why are you describing that person that way? Like what, look at the words you're using, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're not going to get a lot of disagreement from society. You know, you you use that language around other people our age and they're, they're probably going to use worse words, you know what I mean? And so uh, this is a human being who has feelings and is hurt and is sad and, is probably profoundly alone uh, and they're, you know, they're presenting themselves in a way to protect themselves. It's, and it, uh, why isn't any of that? Why don't, why isn't that what you see? And why isn't that in your language? Why isn't it like, I have this kid who I imagine is supremely alone and sad and hurt and afraid and has put up this wall Mm -hmm. and um, presents himself as this kid who smokes pot all the time, doesn't really care. I'm having a hard time getting through to him. Like, how come that isn't what you see? You know, it's like the data is before you. Why Mm -hmm. are you seeing something so different than what I'm seeing? Right. Neither is right, but my point is is that um, 
society will want you to think a particular thing. Right. And, uh, and just trying to, you know, break free of all that, you know? And I think that, to me, you've just looped us back to our internalized oppression, right? So internalized ageism tells us to think that way about teenage boys who, you know, like, that's ageist mm. to think that way. Mm. It's adultist to think that way. It's even sexist sort of male oppression to think that way, right? And and does your student actively engage those forms of oppression because she wants her privilege? No, She's just, it's been internalized for her to believe this way, and she can't undo that with intention and thought, right? Right, and it's, and, you know, I've I've often, well, when did you see the paradigm, or when did you make this, have you always been that way? (laughs) Well, it's interesting, that's a huge question. I didn't always have the language. Yeah. When I... You know, when I was going through the program at Antioch, um, I took the treating internalized oppression class because everyone raved about it, you know. Um, and day one, I thought, this is my, this is my, th- this is it. This is where I belong. And for me, the, um, the phrase adultism, I'd never heard it before in my life. But the moment Jerry mentioned it, and described it, I thought, holy crap, that's my purpose. Like, I am a child advocate. I've always been a child advocate. And I never really understood in in really succinct terms the, the kind of oppression that was affecting children. Mm. And and it so it, it just, it was like we had those that moment of like hearing something and feeling suddenly like I was more, like my spine was taller Mm. that like I had found a home in a way and found a connection and it just made so much sense to me. Wow. And, and at that point then the language came in, but the language was basically aligning with things I'd always done and known. So how did you already know these things? Cause you know, not, not everyone even in our program really gets it. Right. I think what there, like if I go back in time, I was a parent educator, uh, and and the approach that I chose was positive discipline, right? That's very much about treating kids with dignity and respect. So those words were very, those had primed me. Going back a little further, I um, was at Evergreen and really exposed to a lot of thinking about equality and diversity and justice minded. Um, going back further, I was always like, I, 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 um, I didn't necessarily fit in with my own peers. I always had kind of a an out. I was um, I did well in high school. I was well respected, um, adults and and students alike. But um, something about me was always just a little bit different. I just saw the world a little bit different. I looked at the world. I mean, we can go into my family of origin to figure out why, but um, you know. I was very conscientious about the needs and rights of others mm. and very aware of places where people were being harmed. I couldn't land in a click. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't able to land in a click because I, you know what I mean? And find mm. that little groove. I, yeah. I had to blur and, those lines. And you were respected. And I was respected. Like, like kind of popular. Yeah. Right. So that's interesting because I hadn't really thought about it. I, I think, of course, none of us can reduce you know, something to a particular moment, really. But mm-hmm. 
I would say that I wonder how many people who have a relatively easier time with shifting that paradigm to really seeing society's messages for what, to me, you know, the, the matrix, when you actually see the Mm -hmm. code, you're like, Oh, everything is political and historical and, you know, gender and, you know, and so, so for me, it was a similar thing. I growing up as, as Asian, half Asian in basically an all white community and, and at home, I had particular kinds of food I ate and these kinds of things. And then I'd hang out and then all my friends were white, you know, and, and living in their world, you know, kind of ruralish mm-hmm. world, racist world, frankly. And it's not like my world wasn't racist, but the, they would be talking about Asians in front of me. And, and then I'd be like, um, I'm Asian. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, oh, well, not really, you know, they, and I'd be like, I, it's, it was so weird. It was like, sometimes I was Asian, like, oh, you're Asian, <laughs> you know, nah, 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 karate <laughs> and Honda cars, you know, and then the next moment it's just like, oh, there's these other Asians. And that's just one example. But my point is, is that early in life, I was kind of forced to be like, oh, people have weird ideas about different groups of people mm-hmm. <laughs> about me mm-hmm. and my family that are completely not true you know and so that was like the germ of like well what else isn't true right well what what do i have any views like that you know Mm -hmm. and it just sort of cascaded from there to even as a teenager pretty early in life i was like what is gender Mm -hmm. like what is why am i why why am i expected to be quote-unquote like a man Mm -hmm. what is like a man like yeah like who are you as a society you know because it was same thing who are you as a society to tell me as a Japanese person what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to like? Like, who? fuck you. Mm-hmm. And OK, what else? You know, as a man, I'm supposed to I'm supposed to like the outdoors and camp. I hate camping. It, right. You know what I mean? So, I'm, and I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I I hate <laughs> I came out of the closet when I was 35 years old and officially told people in the Northwest I hated camping. It was literally having to, not literally, but, you know, a similar, not as horrible, but I I felt like it. I was like, I'd been hiding this for so long. I'd been Mm -hmm. faking it. You know, I'd gone camping. I'd slept in tents. And I finally just came out and had to tell everyone, look, I don't like camping. And like people Mm -hmm. were like, oh, no, no, you don't get it. Like, you just have to do the right camping. Like, And I'd be like, I've done it. They're like, no, no, no. You just haven't been to the right. I'd be like, okay, you know, it's just anyway. Um I'm rambling, but I wonder how many people who have an easier time with it have been essentially forced to see the stereotypes because of their identity and somehow, you know what I mean? Right. I think as you're talking, I'm thinking about part for me, which is interesting because I don't identify as a Christian, as a practicing Christian in any way. Um, Part of it for me was really buying some of the stories of my church upbringing. Mm. But the stories I bought were the ones that were like about love mm-hmm. and about humans. Yeah, like, same. And, and when I got to a point, I remember getting to a point where um, in high school, I think I wrote a a paper on, I think I titled it Religious Motivation to Kill. And it was about all the ways that like organized religion have really caused harm to people. And it it blew my mind, right? This research paper. And I could no longer go to church. I I just couldn't do it. And, um, but I, 
but I hadn't unlearned the the piece about that what I had taken from that right was be really good to people mm. and mean it mm-hmm. like really mean it right and and to be really good to people and this is where my sort of const- family constellation comes into place is like I had for various reasons become very attuned to people's experience like I needed to mm. to understand what was going on there and then trying to get those people to understand each other. Like I really would like my parents to really understand my brothers. I was the youngest in the household. Like I really had no leverage. <laughs> like I really, but it was really meaningful to me. So those skills got in place fast of, I really want to understand people and their needs and like, and, and then what do I do with that information? Mm. And, and it was across the boards, right? It wasn't like per, only these people or only these people. It was how can I understand uh, like a huge amount of pe- who all this like diversity of people. Yeah. And, I, and then f- like coming, what I needed to learn was my limitations, right? And so I was in an ethics training recently and there was some just like 30 minute bit on diversity. And um, there's that attitude of, and I I recognize it in myself um, previously and what I'm working on always is that I attune really well. So, so isn't that enough? If I attune really well to my client who is from a different, you know, uh, racial profile than me or from a different, um, culture than me, if I just attune well, right, then I should be fine. Mm. And in, in my mind, like I was squiggling in my seat, right? <laughs> like, right. No, no, you should be suspect all the time yeah. because you can't attune outside of your experience. So you, you have to, you know. Well, the way I would phrase it is there's n- absolutely nothing wrong with that principle of saying I want to be attuned. Yes. And that's a wonderful thing that all therapist should be focusing on, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't end there. You can't just be a nice, you know, caring human and, and, and not exhibit harm on other people uh, from your place of privilege or from your ignorance or something, you know, uh, that you, you have to, you have to understand Um, attunement and caring can go a long way to, to help to understanding that, but you have to, I have to be supremely aware of like the mm-hmm. context and, and what's happening. One sure. of the places that I see that most frequently or lately has been be- really um, vibrant for me is the how psychology is situated in an individualistic mindset. But I work with clients who have been raised in a collectivist mindset. And if I push the differentiation that we learn from Bowen, which I love, you know, if I push that too hard, I'm actually not honoring uh, amazing skills and strengths of the collectivist piece, you know, and um, really working with that to me as an entry point student seem to be able to grab first, right? It seems a bit easier to see that in action and explain that and then moving towards, okay, now look at all of these other ways that a person's identities in a, a target position or even sometimes in an agent position um, are outside of your immediate purview, right? So like you haven't trained your intuition to attune to that yet. So we're actively training your intuition to to be able to connect where I always say in multicultural, I want you to know, the, I want you to be able to feel when you don't know something. Yeah. You know, when when you're in that space of, 
oh, I'm right outside what I know. And I need, and here's what I go to, to figure that stuff out. Right. right. Yeah, that's good. And the, and the sort of a shade off that, the way that I conceive of my own understanding of my own path and the sort of path that I try to be on with my students and supervisees, which is that it, simply saying that you're going to care and, and, and listen is not going to cut it because you only have so much time. And uh, there are certain things that, as a human being, for me, when I hear someone else say just a couple words, I know exactly what they're, you know, in all the, the context that they're saying it, I know exactly what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, someone sits down on a couch, a guy sits down on the couch and says, you know, so as I, I got in a fight with my partner and I, I just, I just wanted to throw my hands up, you know, I just, I, I didn't know what to do and I, I just... I just wanted to, I don't know, I just wanted to get a drink and just like, I don't know, just do I want to be in this relationship? Like, I don't need to hear much more than that and go like, I know what that, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly what that is. And I'm at risk of making too many assumptions, but, but there are experiences there that I, it's like I've lived, you know, and I'm, I'm, I don't need to ask him clarifying question after clarifying question to like, what are you talking about? It's like, Mm -hmm. I know what that is. Someone comes in as a trans person and and is transitioning uh, currently and is talking about hormone pills and talking about going to work and talking about um, how, you know, I, I, don't, I can't even come up with an example because it, it's such, such a different life for me. Um, something about like, um, I don't know, just some some particular experience that, that other trans people will be like, oh, been there, know exactly what. Now, so... With that person, I would have to ask them what. So, what's what are hormones? You know, like mm-hmm. if I was completely ignorant, what's a trans person? <laughs> uh, what are hormones? What do you mean by transitioning? What do you mean? How does society treat you? Well, are you sure they don't like you? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, ignor- that's what we don't want you to be doing. Right? Ignorance <laughs> means you right. have. You you're starting from complete ground zero. You have they're a foreign alien from another planet. You have no basis for getting them based on a few words, which is you need that. You don't want therapy sessions to grind to a halt while while a client explains something to you. Right. So the only way that us clinicians can uh, advance our competencies is to learn these stories, to hear them, to do our best educationally and also as an experienced student to really put ourselves in, in those shoes and, and get that story and get those stories and get those, you know, those knowledge things, you know, into mm-hmm. our bones. It doesn't mean that the person, you know, went through that, but it, it gives you some kind of relatability mm-hmm. to, to what they're saying, you know? And um, see, and what you're describing, I think is, can, it's a place that baffles a, a lot of, new clinicians and a lot of students and say you're in that situation here's this brand new person who who is explaining things I have no idea about and and I'm as their teacher telling them don't make that person your spokesperson right and they're like how do what do I do in that moment right Mm -hmm. because that that client hasn't come to you to teach you how to understand trans issues. They've come to you to talk about themselves, right? Right. And so you're put in an interesting position of, I think, having to say things more like I, you know, uh, being vulnerable and saying, I I 
don't understand all the ins and out of hormones. And I want you to know that um, we have a couple of options here. If you're comfortable and feel like you want to bring me up to speed, that's a good way to use our time. Uh, I'm also very comfortable with you saying, could you please go do your research before our next session? You know, and, and me leaving and yes, yes. So keep talking about your unique experience, right? Um, and, and at each of those intersections, being able to say, and recognizing I'm in a power position and you might feel like you have to answer me because I'm asking the questions and that's how this goes in therapy. Yeah. But also it, it becomes not about them, but about a generalized experience. If we just talk about hormones or we just, and that's not what clients want. They oh. want to be seen uniquely. Right. right. And so we, we're in a position where we have to humble ourselves, offer that there's things that I don't know. And, and you have choice here. Like you, you get to tell me about your unique experience as long as it is, but you don't have to teach me about trans, right? Right. Um, and, and, and the therapist should learn about common things that yes. their clients or after the first session, uh, see consultation or a yes. lot of exposure and, and the, and, and the, and the mistake that we made, I think, 20, 30 years ago was like, well, now I know what it's like to be trans. So, you know, it, right. instead of like, to me, it's a matter of, of like I say, just really internalizing so, to the point where you feel the feelings too. Like, like I'm not a cis woman. I, I have no idea what it's like, but I've done so much interfacing with with female experiences in our society, one mm -hmm. that when I see a sexist act against a woman, I feel it in my soul. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Ugh. like I don't have to go. It's not a, it's not an intellectual thing. Like, right. Oh, I wonder, like it actually like it all, it'll bother me. I'll just mm -hmm. be like that, that man is being sexist to women and it hurts me. It's like, mm -hmm. Ugh, you know, and, I wasn't like that originally because it just, you know, how would I know, you know? And so um, that's the only way I can kind of explain it. It's mm -hmm. like by really listening, paying attention, learning, um, thinking, identifying your own connection to it somehow. Like mm -hmm. we've all been made to feel like shit by somebody, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like somehow connecting certain acts that, that don't necessarily hurt you, but hurt someone else and then you feel it, you know, it's like, that's, I don't know. Am I describing something that makes any sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me. I think you're describing what's gorgeous about h humans, right? Is our ability to have empathy. Hmm. And, and then in addition to that, it's having empathy that doesn't demolish us. Hmm. Right. So having empathy with enough differentiation that, I can get that hit that that's really ugly. What I, I just witnessed that sexist remark and that feels really ugly, but I don't, I don't have to now, um, uh, fall apart because of it. Right. Like I, I, and I can make some decisions, um, of, of how I want to next act, you know? And like, I, I think that when sometimes people, f uh, I have so many ideas about this, but really empathy, needs to be balanced with a piece of self-compassion and differentiation in a way because people get so overwhelmed by their own empathy. They get so concerned about others that, that they can't manage themselves. And I have a lot of other thinking about that that maybe another time, but 
But when you when you're allowed, so people shut down, they shut down their empathetic response, because it's overwhelming to them personally. Hmm. And they and, and, and we don't train people, you know, we don't train people how to be empathic, and, and, and safe and boundaried. Interesting. And so and it, it, it's hard to be empathic. It's hard to be have empathy all the time. If you're also feeling the pain of others all the time. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know if I have that problem. It doesn't. No, you sound like you you connect with a, a, a differentiated stance, right? Like I can feel that way and and let myself connect with it personally, but not accept all of it and get like yeah. feel it all and get you know. But I know people like that for sure. Um, so that's an interesting point. Um, so as we're talking about this, it's I'm just so glad that it resonates with you and is something that you do as well, because it's the way that I've always thought about it and the way I talk about it with my students that because people get like I've been saying, especially on the Internet and people listening to this mm-hmm. on the Internet will get it's like, well, what about racism, sexism, you know, like um, Alex Jones and Donald Trump and you know, the, the, the raging, angry feminists on the internet, you know, like, what about all that stuff? And whenever I, I, I just always say like, well, okay, I, I don't know what to say about any of that. But what I do know is that when we, when you hear someone that is upset about something and they're calling something sexist or they're calling something racist or they're, they're quote unquote offended, it's all, 99% of the time, it is a lack of empathy given to that person or they don't know you have empathy for them or something Mm -hmm. and they feel like you don't care. It's not a matter of doing the right thing. It's not a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, political correctness rules. It's about having empathy for another human being. So if, as you said, you know, with your class, it's, it's, it's not about following the rules because you, you say yourself, like, I don't necessarily know the rules Mm -hmm. And I probably don't know the rules as well as some of the students in the class. So I might, quote unquote, not follow the rules. But if I have empathy for people who, uh, for everyone, you know, people who don't know the rules, so to speak, and people who are sort of further down the road in that understanding of language and how it, how, you know, we ought to be wording things to, to not harm other people, again, based on empathy, then it all works out. And so, you know, cause, cause people will email me and this questions on the internet. It's like, well, you know, what word am I supposed to use or, you know, how are you supposed to avoid it? You know, people get offended too easily. And I'm just like, well, we're okay. Just bring it back to the empathy part, you know, because again, most people have empathy. They care about other human beings. They, you know, a, a KKK member has empathy in all likelihood. And you go to that person and, and I've, I've seen videos on the internet, you know, you get a black guy and a a white KK guy Mm -hmm. together in a room and they like each other Mm -hmm. because they, they, it's politics, it's culture, it's where they come from. They have, you know, it's protectiveness, you know, these ideas about why you would join such an organization and stuff. But the guy has a heart Mm -hmm. and he deep down cares and it doesn't mean we shouldn't push back. It doesn't mean we shouldn't like, you know, uh, do our part to, you know, uh, preside safety. You know, it doesn't right. mean that we need to be like open arms for everything. But my point is, is that it all comes down to empathy and it all comes down to hurt feelings and it's, and people in general, 
one, our, their feelings don't get hurt as often as people think they do. And two, uh, the vast majority of people who get their feelings hurt never say anything. So the very few people that are saying something are probably representing thousands of people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, when one person stands up and says, I don't like the fact that we call it the Washington Redskins, you know, it's like, maybe we should be listening to those people. Mm -hmm. And, And why do we want a football team to, to harm other, to hurt other people's feelings, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and at the same time, there's a tradition in uh, Washington, D.C. of calling this football team this certain name, and they're attached to it. And so I have empathy for that, too. Mm-hmm. To me, there's a right answer to that question, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like my high school, Issaquah High School, was the Issaquah Indians, and we changed it to the Eagles. And I mm-hmm. thought, thank God, yeah. you know what I mean? But my brother thinks of it as a travesty. Mm-hmm. And I have emp- my brother's a nice guy. He's a wonderful ca- probably more caring than I am and yet hates the idea that we change it to the Eagles, you know, but you know, he listens to different radio stations and has different (laughs) ideas about like, and he's older, you know, whatever. But so I'm rambling, but um, let me ask you just a few pointed questions and just, we're at the very end. I don't want to waste any more time, but just a few pointed questions about the whole point perhaps of our program. Cause I, I kind of feel like we're at that point in the podcast. Um, so the point of uh, the program, and particularly of these courses that you teach, is to help students to become better, better therapists, correct? Correct. To help them to have empathy for groups of people who they don't have empathy for uh, pre-made. <laughs> to help them have empathy yes. for all groups of people. Yes. Um, to help them understand themselves. Yes. Better, you know, mm-hmm. to help them understand how they have been harmed by society as well yes. and how that expresses itself through various different things for the purpose, not only of their own personal growth, but also to help them be a better therapist, Right. to help them to um, understand politics a little better. Obviously there's not a lot of exposure to that, but uh, giving some understanding of the broader culture, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, giving them some knowledge of particular groups of people that are commonly seen in our offices, like trans people, like, um, you know, gay people, like, mm-hmm. um, teenagers, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's not going to cover, you know, Ethiopians, for example, you know, necessarily my courses. No. Yeah. yeah. Or someone from Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. if that's even a country anymore. The Is Czech it? Republic. Czech Republic. Um, <laughs> Unless it changed again. Yeah. I was there. But Croatia the is the Yugoslavia, right? Pretty sure. Anyway, um, so uh, I'm pretty sure we have listeners there too. Um, <laughs> Maybe they'll write you an email. Yeah. Please, you. please. Um, just have empathy. Um, any other kind of pointed you know, pithy goals that you think we have as a program. <laughs> That's a setup, pithy. Um, as you were talking before the pointed questions, I was thinking, because uh, I am a human and like to make things simple, um, that maybe really it is just, it, it is really tied to connecting that those who have not been able to speak of their experience, their true experience, and get empath- empathy and understanding about it, have traditionally been people who have suffered. And so in all ways, part of what I do as a clinician is help children to be heard better by parents 
so that they can feel it. So the kids can get the empathy they need to feel understood and feel less hurt. I, it's, you know, my trans clients who want to be able to talk about their experience more openly so they can find other people who've experienced what they've experienced, but also so they can feel understood and validated and empathized with. So it's simultaneously working on the empathy, but getting clinicians to have openness to hear more and more and more conversation, more and more and more about all communities who suffer. Mm. And, and my, you know, and, and that thinking that suffering isn't exclusive to only those who are marginalized Mm. and, and, has it historically been much, much harder for them to talk their truths? Yes. Mm-hmm. Has it historically been, you know, and currently much, much harder? Yes. Um, but it's that, pe- that, that importance of putting yourself in a position as a counselor that invites as much conversation and explanation and story as possible to come forth so then you can offer the empathy and when we ex- when we drop the pronouns and when we expand our thinking, when we look at all the oppressions and not just the highlighted ones, like I add so many other oppressions to that list. Yeah. Um, what are some non non you know things that people don't usually think about? Um, extrovertism. Mm. Uh, I have traditionally or commonly had a lot of of clients in my office who are just introverts in an extrovert world. Mm. And introverts... Or a world that privileges extroverts. Privileges extroverts. And in school systems in particular, like a lot of introverts in, who are suffering in schools, um, I know they're going to get to a point where they can make their world work for them as an adult when they have more power as an adult. Um, but it's not... You can't... like introverts aren't going to necessarily stand up on the table in the cafeteria and yelled introverts unite. That, yeah. That's not really their tendency. Right. Yeah. So, um, exactly. so many of the clients I work with who are introverts and, and find out that it's a temperament that it's just a bad fit. It's not, you're not wrong. Like you're, there's nothing wrong with you, mm. but they, Having the language to talk about it, I've I've watched it happen over and over when I mentioned, do you know this thing called in- extrovertism, like where really people who are of that temperament are privileged, they look at me with these huge eyes and like experience suddenly that they're not sick or, or there's nothing wrong with their mental health. They just have a temperament that doesn't fit and they're right. feeling that power differential and um, so that's one that like catches people off guard. And um, so I keep having one last question. This yeah. is my final last question. Okay. Okay. Uh, Cause I wanted to get this early. It doesn't really fit at this point, but okay. can you tell me like a thing in class that happened that was particularly challenging in terms of like dynamics between students that you're willing to share? Um, you know, cause I, I, I think that we, cause you, when mm-hmm. you and I talk off mic, we're often, you know, talking about these kind of yeah. difficult moments. And I feel like we didn't really talk about any of them. You know, there's something you're willing to generally talk about. We were having a, a discussion in a multicultural class about cultural appropriation and, and the reading that they read that week is a great author who really incites people. Like, I mean, she really was incites, not the word, but like, um, the way she writes 
tends to activate people because she's very, um, this is bad kind of thing. And, um, and I love that she does that because she has the right to do that from her marginalized position. And it really challenges folks in who, who want every, everyone to get along, you know? And so, um, in class, there was a discussion of the, the article was a, about harm that was done to this author in that she um, was part of a, uh, a firstborn, she had immigrant parents and she, she was uh, first generation American, but was perceived as uh, her ethnicity, you know, um, because of her coloring. And um, she was part of that. We talked off mic about um, that, the era in which immigrant parents would refuse to teach their children their native language and they would only teach them English. And so she didn't know her native language and um, her family's language. And uh, she, she had worked herself up into a position of being a, a, a college professor and another professor had gone and spent time in her, the country her parents are from and come back and, and tried to engage her in conversation in the, the language of that country. And, and she was in, really incensed about it. It was like really, really harmed by that action on that part. And so my students were a small, a small amount of students were really struggling with how it was inappropriate that she got so mad at that other person. That was that was inappropriate that she was so mad. And um, that was one of further along in the quarter. And I was really watching all of the students navigate that together. And so some students were very much on this author's side, I'm guessing. Um, some were on her side and trying to explain, you know, why and, she had the right to be angry. And, other, and maybe even had had a similar experience in her life or something. Mm-hmm. And then another group of people were just like, this person is oversensitive. Right. Like, she, and, and I'm also guessing that they're only taking that point of view because they themselves have probably made those mistakes themselves. Potentially. Or, yeah, some, or could see themselves doing such a thing. Right. You know? And cultural appropriation could have its own podcast, and I, I wouldn't be your expert there, but it's really hard for people to understand the extent of where cult, you know, where does it begin and end, cultural appropriation. Right. And so it's hard in that way, too. And these were... Um, uh, people who throughout the quarter have done great work at like understanding themselves and being very conscientious. And this was a point where it was like, they were simultaneously recognizing there's something really, I'm sure there's something wrong with what I'm saying. And I also feel this way, right? Like, I'm sure there's something wrong with what I'm saying. And I feel like, why did she get so angry? Because angry just pushes that person away. And she, then she doesn't get to talk to him if she just gets mad at him and really struggling with that, which, you know, people always have troubles with anger anyway. But, um, and I just, the way the timing worked, I, and the way the discussion was happening, it didn't need me to intervene. People were not, they were having a, a heated conversation. So you had weren't a, harming each so other. So you were at a crossroads as, yes. a, as a leader. You thought, should I save them? Should I How intervene? do I help here? Do I need to help here? Yeah. Uh, and, but there's also an impulse to save as a, as a, leader to be like, um, I want to save people from, from hurting each other's feelings or something, you know, Oh, save people from the discomfort of where we're headed as, you know, like, and I've seen leaders do this. They will, they will say something like, well, let's agree to disagree. Anyway, moving on, you know, that's not, yeah, that's not me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like, that would be the pitfall, you know? 
and um, and instead you decided to let them talk it out. I decided, yeah, to let them be in it because they weren't they were um, exploring their perspectives, but they weren't harming each other. Okay, and, and but their perspectives were they were struggling to be understood by each other, and that was okay with me. Because that's a real thing. Yeah. And so class sort of ended and I, I, I went away thinking, okay, how do I come back to this? How do I want to come back to this? And a couple of people processed that experience in their journal entry that week, which was great because they really like these were um, students who lean towards quiet, right? They're not, they don't process out loud in class that much, but they had moved into their journals and said, I, I still don't know how to make sense of this and I have these feelings about it. And so that was like, that gave me more information about how now, how do I come back to it, right? So I brought um, the next class, I brought an experiential exercise in to really explore cultural appropriation and, and, and noted that you were, you know, you were really good at being in that discomfort, but left without conclusion. There may not be conclusion, but um, we need to address the the pieces that were missed, right? The pieces where those of you who were angry or were confused about her anger um, were missing some pieces. And, and so we're going to use this activity to like look at those pieces and drop into that. And, um, for me, you know, there's always that question of those, could I have perceived that those quiet students needed me in that moment, that class, maybe, but they weren't like they, and they had no harm was done to them. Right. Mm-hmm. But so it invited all... their thinking. They brought their thinking right. to the surface. And then we came back and we, we brought it all back up and we engaged the material in a more experiential way that that helped um, those who were on the why she's so angry side um, did this activity and then in debriefing the activity we're like oh okay I get where that came from so as an instructor this is all intuited also through experience and also because you it's later in the quarter you know people a little better. Mm-hmm you get a vibe for what's possible and what's the likely, you know, yeah. hood of this heading in a direction that is okay, given the choices you're making, mm-hmm. um, which is great, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and again, a lot of instructors, they just avoid the whole thing. They'll mm-hmm. just be like, well, moving on, or we have another thing on our agenda we have to get to, or, um, yeah. or honestly, what a lot of leaders that I've seen will do is they'll, they'll just take the safe route and take the, anti-appropriation stance and try to, and you know, align themselves with that group and try to explain to sort of beat them down with mm-hmm. an explanation of like, here's wow, here's how your thinking is wrong. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Not those words particularly, but here's what they're trying to tell you is maybe the way it would be phrased. Here's yeah. what these people are trying to tell you is my guess. Da, 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 da. Here's what the author is trying to tell you, you people that need to change mm-hmm. your mind. You know what I mean? And then, uh, that might not be terrible, but in that situation, you made a call that that would be too heavy handed or not allow them enough time for the gears to turn in their own heads about, you know, what's happening and to make an actual change for them rather than them being silenced or something like that. Right. Yeah. What I recognized from their so general demeanor was they were they were actively engaged in working out 
their their internalized oppression. Mm. And the way that starts is by saying all the wrong things, right? It, by not understanding something, but getting to talk about it. So it, getting to talk through, I'm having this reaction. I suspect that it's not the right reaction based on everything I've learned in this course. But nonetheless, here it is. And and what we want, right, is all of that stuff to be up and out and on the surface so that everyone gets to look at it, especially the person who is feeling it mm-hmm. and 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 gets empathy for the feeling of confusion. I can empathize with the confusion. I don't have to collude with the racism, right, or the appropriation. I'm not going to go along with that, but I can empathize with the confusion yeah. and then give them an opportunity to be exposed to more information yeah. so they can come to the... Uh, you know, and yeah, I do have an agenda. I do want them to come to the conclusion that she has the right to that, you right. know? Yeah. The thing about appropriation that I wish was more discussed is that I feel like is often lost in the general discussion around appropriation is that the appropriation and a specific appropriation incident is one among a million that that person has experienced in terms of um, not only just appropriation, but also just general lack of empathy for one's experience or just feeling harmed and, and otherized or something. You know, I just, just came across this video on YouTube of someone was walking around a campus and found someone in a poncho, like a Mexican poncho, and ran up to him and his friends and said, just start screaming at him because it was Cinco de Mayo. And mm-hmm. so he's just screaming at him. What do you do with that poncho? Get that off. That's cultural appropriation. And then it, it just turned into this huge like yelling match between, you know, them. And of course, you know, nothing got any better, but YouTube got a bunch of clicks, including mine. And, and I think the point was look at how stupid this woman was for attacking this guy wearing mm-hmm. a poncho. You know what I mean? And, so I don't I don't agree with either side of this whole equation, but to me, like when I see people who put up Tibetan prayer flags in their office, or they go to um, Japan and they uh, find a, a trinket of some kind that they liked and they put it up in their office, or better yet, some kind of Buddhist. Um, uh, memorabilia and they they have a a slight affinity to what they think they understand what buddhism is and they put it in their office and not only do they think they're doing something actually nice to japanese people or something but or asians in general but other uh ignorant people will walk into the office and go oh what a nice little buddhist Mm -hmm. thing you have there I'm kind of into Buddhism too, you know, and it fucking drives me crazy because it's like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. You went on a vacation. Great. You bought a trinket. Great. But it's not your thing. It would be the same thing as if a Japanese person, and they do this, come to the United States and um, bought a crucifix with Jesus Christ being, you know, killed on the cross and then hangs it on their wall above their bed. It's just like, well, I saw someone, it's an American thing. They'd be, you know, now some people would be like, well, I don't get it. Well, if you live in traditional mainstream common culture in America, you probably haven't been harmed by appropriation very often. So it doesn't really affect you. 
you can re- you can agree that it's a little silly for mm-hmm. a Buddhist or Shinto Japanese person coming to the United States and buying a humongous crucifix and putting it over their you know their bed. Um, but imagine if that happened over and over and over again. You know, someone just saying something like, um, "Oh yeah, Japan um, karaoke." You know, that's a thing, right? Or or as a kid constantly people would just look at me and go like oh you probably know karate well watch out for that guy he knows karate mm-hmm. yeah, again if it was just one thing um it wouldn't bother me my last name i'm just so happy to live in seattle where there's a lot of asians and half asians i can say my name's honda and no one blinks an eye for the most part i step one fucking foot out of king county or even to eastern king county Honda. Uh, now, again, if, if it was the only, it's my fucking name. How many times, I'm 47, how many times do you think that's, that's come up in my life? Right. You know, right. uh, McDonald's employee. Like, how many times do you think mm-hmm. that's come up? Uh, if, if it's the first time or the hundredth time, great. But like the, literally the 10,000th time, I'm just like, yes, I have a weird fucking last name. You know, yes, it's foreign to you, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who lives in this part of the, you know, I am immediately now recognized as right. someone who is fucking weird. Yeah. Like I have a weird other foreign last name to you, you know, and, and it's laughable. It's, it's jokey. You know, it's mm-hmm. something that you think is funny. Like it's not funny, you know? And so, um, when this author has someone, what was the example? Uh, someone someone went to, quote unquote, where she came from or yeah, something and yeah. came back and started speaking her language. Like, look at me. Yeah. I went to your land and now I speak your yeah. language. It it just has, it's just the, the onslaught and the lifetime of that just bullshit. And the fact that her, quote unquote, group of people were marginalized and oppressed and genocided mm-hmm. by this by this guy's ancestors. Do you know what I mean? Right, and it's right. just like, ah, you know, right. all of that comes into sharp focus when, you know, these little cultural, you know, I would consider them little myself, but they just nip, you know, they just like a, they just slowly erode your ability to be patient and caring. And that's what we were able to do in that class through this activity that this exercise that I it's totally still from improvisation all the time. But, um, this exercise, unfortunately, I have a lot of um, articles in that quarter that are that she wrote. And so we actually have a lot about that author's life. So we took that event and made it like we went back in time, right? Like and people had to fill in the gaps um, because they knew a lot about her. The game itself. Well, anyway, the, the, imagine seven chairs, empty chairs and um, the if you're facing those chairs and the one farthest to the right is the end of the story. Okay. And so what I had them do was we're going to sit, someone's going to sit in this chair and we're going to decide today a hundred percent true. She gets to be mad. That's just absolutely true that she gets to be angry. So the last piece of the story is she has the right to be absolutely angry about this. And then and then I asked the students to fill in those other chairs as moments in her life. Oh, I like it. That built the story towards that truth. Right. 
And because they'd been able to read about different parts of her life, we could set in a truth that she was um, molested and assaulted by uh, white men when she was a child. Mm. We could set in a truth of, uh, of her parents, you know, her family ignoring that and that not being something she could talk about. Like we could set in all of these truths that we when we could track her history of racism, her history of sexism, her history of classism, that once you see all of those pieces in her lifeline ending with she has absolutely the right to be angry about this it it all made sense yeah right so it's that that background story and we you know can use that same format to look at other pieces of of racism like what what would you what do we know about someone going backwards in time that allows them to be in this position there and that has caused them to be and so that's exactly what we did, right? Look at the history here. This is one moment, but look at her past. Do you see now why she has the right to be here? And- right. And it, again, it just all comes back to empathy. Like mm-hmm. when you see something that happens, you don't understand it. And you think, because we're trained to do that from day one right. for, as, as humans and families and stuff. We'll be like, you're overreacting. You know, something's wrong with you. Like, shut up. You know, we're told that all the time as kids. And then we sort of adopt that, like, knock it off, like, keep it to yourself. And and so we see something in society. It's like someone's angry. We don't like it. We don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And we're like, you're overreacting. Shut up. And instead of, like, assuming there must be a good reason for this, you know. Uh, even the person yelling at the person with the poncho, it's like, there must be a good reason for that person doing that kind of what I would mm-hmm. look at as odd behavior. I wouldn't do that. Um, I've even worn a poncho. I went to, I went to uh, Tijuana mm-hmm. when I was uh, 17 and bought a poncho and, and wore it a few times in high school. Okay. So I was the other guy, you know what I mean? Um, but it's all about like trying to understand like at Evergreen, that whole thing. Did you keep up to date on the news of that that whole snap? Do you even know? No, probably not. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I had a whole argument. Yeah, sorry. I, I had a whole argument with someone on the podcast about it. Oh. But but um, it was all, I was all, because I don't understand it, but I was all like, well, you just have to have empathy for it. But anyway, I don't want to waste any more time. Obviously, this is something I like to talk yeah. with you about. Um, I would totally stay, but I have to work. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Is that really the time right now? Are you totally late? Oh, yeah. That's all right. It's a phone session. Okay. 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 So, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Heidi. <laughs> Are you late for the phone session? No, it's in 10 minutes. Oh, okay. We're okay. We can sort of wrap up, but then I... I'm so sorry. <laughs> I got right. so into it. I know, I, me too. I was like, this is the I fastest 30... Like, this is the longest 30 minutes ever. I, sh- I thought for sure I was I was only going to talk to you for about an hour, but it's been two and a half hours now. It seriously has, hasn't it? Yeah. Wow. I don't envy you. You're editing. I'm not going to edit any of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's all going on. Uh, thanks for joining me, Heidi. Yeah. Uh, how'd it feel? Oh, it, it felt good. I didn't even... You'll have to have me back, though, because I didn't even get to my soapbox thing. Like, I was, like, really happy following your lead there. Yeah. Um, well, let's do it again. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can look into the whole Evergreen thing oh, okay. on the internet. See if I have an opinion on yeah. it. Yeah. And, and uh, again, I just want to... One last thing is, you know... People on the internet would assume you're, you teach in Antioch, you're a multicultural person, you went to Evergreen, of course you would know about the internet Evergreen thing, but you don't even, you've never even heard of it because I don't know, because the internet is just the world, you know? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there, there's a lot that comes up there for me around, um, 
like I, 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 everything we just said to you, right? But some of my, I, my stuck points are, uh, I'm not political enough, right? Or I'm not um, informed enough, or I'm but not. To me, and I'm, a, I'm totally okay with that because yeah. it's just that we privilege in our society a certain focus on these internet societal decisions about what we're supposed to focus on, you know, Mm -hmm. and some things we should Trayvon Martin, for example, but you know, some things I just think like the internet just, I don't know. Anyway, thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.